Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan, and we are back for day seven of Epic versus Apple. That's right, folks. If you've been watching this series from the start, we're now on a full calendar week of testimony in this, one of the biggest technology cases of the last 20 or 30 years. If you haven't been following this from the start, we've got two playlists now. An antitrust epic talks about the entirety of the case from really way back when the mega drop happened last fall and how all of this kind of percolated through the legal system, through temporary restraining orders and preliminary injunctions. And we've also now got a shorter quote unquote playlist that goes only through a summary of what happened before the trial and the days of the trial testimony itself. So hopefully, if you're interested in any of this and you haven't been following it with us from the beginning, you can check out either those playlists or tell folks that these playlists exist to have a more in-depth conversation about what's happening. Now, unlike other days in the case, and certainly has been the case this week, we haven't gotten a lot of leaks, a lot of extra materials that have come out before the testimony actually happened. So yesterday, May 11th, Very little occurred, except there was confirmation that one of the other big witnesses in the case, Tim Sweeney, CEO of Epic being one, he led off, he kicked off the proceedings on day one and two of this trial, is going to be followed up at the end of the trial with CEO of Apple, Tim Cook. And we don't know exactly what day that's going to be, but Apple plans to basically finish their defense with testimony from Tim Cook himself. It's also worth noting that separate from the trial, kind of, was an announcement that Apple made yesterday, as reported on by Nick Stat at Protocol here, that says the comp- company has blocked $1.5 billion in potentially fraudulent transactions in 2020. Or as the quote goes, in 2020 alone, Apple's combination of sophisticated technology and human expertise protected customers from more than $1.5 billion in potentially fraudulent transactions, preventing the attempted theft of their money, information, and time, and kept nearly a million risky and vulnerable new apps out of their hands. Apple says the App Store is an essential line of defense and that its guidelines exist with the goal of protecting users and providing them with the very best experience on the App Store. No coincidence at all. Or as the subheading here at Protocol says, the timing of this announcement is unlikely to be coincidental. Of course, one of the main arguments that Apple has is not just that they're not a relevant market as the purveyors of a single brand that they control through hardware and software, but also that their 30% cut, whatever it is that they're charging, the rules that they have to operate within their ecosystem are there for a reason. And one of those reasons that they continue to put forth in court and in their documents is safety, security, data privacy, etc. So they released this to say they've stopped $1.5 billion in potential fraud last year, and undoubtedly this will come up in the trial itself, but not yet. Right now, we're still on Epic trying to make its case. As we talked about yesterday, we're in what we call the battle of the experts zone of a litigation where Epic has hired a number of economics experts to explain to the court why their theory of the case is right, why Apple has a monopoly, why Apple is abusing that monopoly and restraining trade in a way that the court should prevent and Epic should win. Yesterday, we talked about the initial testimony from David Evans, who we didn't get cross-examination on, so he actually didn't go too far in depth on what he wanted to talk about. That changes today, or at least in this video today, on testimony from yesterday that is talking about not just what David Evans has to say, but another economist 
And now Apple gets to try to poke holes in what he is saying. As Addie Robertson at The Verge, who we use for our live tweets, thank you very much, Ms. Robertson, you're very good at this and we very much appreciate it, says, we're starting off with economist David Evans, who also gave testimony yesterday. Evans has been laying out the case for why Apple has an unfair monopoly on distributing iOS apps. My conclusion is that it harms consumers by raising prices to developers, the monopoly power that Apple has. Even if it's not necessarily visible to consumers, developers likely pass on those charges. Some companies have specifically offered lower prices outside the app store. In fact, Epic being one of them. Epic wants to use that as evidence that they would charge lower prices, but for the 30% cut on the Apple App Store. One of the problems that Epic has in making that case is that they lowered their prices on other markets that already continue to take their 30% cut, most notably the console manufacturers. They lowered prices to highlight this issue during the mega drop on every place but the App Store and then just accept lower money on the console manufacturer's ecosystem. So this is an interesting thing that The Economist is trying to say here, that the consumers might not see it directly, but developers pass on the charges is true. We expect most fees, most middle costs to be passed on to the consumers in some way. That includes taxes from federal and state entities. Those get passed along, and that's kind of the normal way the market operates on these kinds of things. But Epic continues to have a problem that Apple will likely bring up with the Epic Game Store not really changing prices all that much for video games and games that are accessible to players, even though the developers themselves are making an extra 18% plus, depending on which way you count the math. So that will be something I would expect Apple to kind of poke at. And one of the things that Apple does indeed poke at. Moving into cross-examination, Apple's lawyer notes that Evans has also been retained in Epic's antitrust lawsuit against Google. And he says, I don't know if I've been retained. Oh, I guess we have. It doesn't matter. The point is, is that Epic has hired this economist. There's nothing wrong with hiring an expert. You don't have this expertise yourself, but it is always one of the things you do is cross-examination. And just to point out, hey, your bills are getting paid by one party or the other. So at bare minimum, the judge here, literally the judge or the jury should take that into account that these experts have been paid. I would fully expect Epic's first question when Apple's experts come up to be Apple's paying you, aren't they? And that's pretty normal course operating procedure. But as you can imagine, it makes life difficult when you've got two experts yelling at each other about different things, each paid by one of the parties. And it's as something as granular and amorphous as whether or not antitrust laws and competition have been harmed. Moving into that cross-examination, asks about Google, and then we're talking about the definitions of markets involved. And I wanted to point out this particular thread of Ms. Robertson's live tweeting, because I think it's interesting, and I think it's useful to understanding the difficulties that an antitrust court has on these questions. We're talking about the definitions of the markets involved here. Do in-app purchase transactions occur in the payment solutions market? And then the answer appears to be, there's not quotes here, the actual transaction between developer and consumer is not a part of the market, but the payment service provided is. And things get confusing, right? The judge is confused by this. So am I, sort of. Evan says he's trying to distinguish between the provision of the payment service and the actual process of a consumer paying for it. And we can kind of back this up. One of the problems that Evans has is that he is trying to assume that Apple has monopoly power in its app distribution in its payment solutions market, 
where it limits the only payment solution provider to in-app payment processing. And it has that monopoly power effectively because the phone at the OS level has market power. But that's not exactly what he says here to rely on that monopoly use. So he's dividing and combining markets in a very unusual way. And it makes it difficult for Ms. Robertson to follow. It makes it difficult for the judge to follow. It makes it difficult for us to follow. But what he's trying to say here is that the payment solutions market is a market for payment solutions. It's a market for actually moving money from one account to the other. And that is distinct from the market for the in-app purchases. Let's call them the V-Bucks. That the V-Bucks is a market in of itself. The solutions for moving money to purchase V-Bucks is a market. The app distribution model is a market at the app store level. And then the OS is a market as well. And it's when the OS kind of gets strong enough in its market power that it filters down into allowing Apple to do things that are anti-competitive. As we've said in this space, that's a problematic definition because from moment one, Apple has monopoly power over its OS, has monopoly power over its app store, has monopoly power over its in-app payment processing. If you choose to believe those are all separate markets. So you have to drag in this other concept of Apple gaining power in the overall phone market, but also say at the same time that it isn't competing in that phone market on these other markets, which certainly David Evans and Epic would like to frame for the court as aftermarkets, things that the consumer isn't actually thinking about when they purchase the phone and that Apple's lock-in powers effectively allow them to have monopoly access over consumers after they have purchased the phone. But it's no surprise that folks are confused here. Ms. Robertson's confused here. The judge appears frustrated, et cetera, et cetera, because none of this is obvious. None of this is clear. And none of it really follows with what we've traditionally thought of as how markets work, especially single brand markets with one product that we're analyzing in this fashion. So it's very complicated. And ultimately, the court's opinion on this case, the decision that it ultimately reaches, is going to be based on evaluating these combating sets of experts and coming to a conclusion that will definitely get appealed, but that will just have more and more and more and more judges opining on on this kind of ephemera that is two economists with slightly different theories, each paid for by one of the parties, arguing over what's actually happening when the reality is the court and the, the justice system doesn't have a great way of knowing one way or the other. Evans concluded, no smartphone maker competes with Apple, lawyer says. Evans says he doesn't understand the question. They work out a conclusion that the point is Android doesn't compete with iOS literally on the iPhone, I think. I'm not sure about this. And this is another aspect of confusion. And again, I don't blame Ms. Robertson or the judge on any of this because that combination of markets arrives at a point where what you've got is this economist in court saying that the monopoly power is the fact that essentially iPhone apps don't play on an Android and Android apps don't play on an iPhone. So they aren't competitors, even if they are a duopoly of the overall market and neither really has the market power that would suggest monopoly access to that market. Moving to game console questions, you don't deny that almost all game console owners own a smartphone, do you? And you're not claiming that 60 to 90% of game console owners only play on consoles, are you? The lawyer asks. I am claiming based on Fortnite data that Fortnite app users who play on game consoles mainly play on game consoles. I don't have the precise percentage in mind, but it's a high percentage. And the lawyer clarifies he isn't making this claim for the market as a whole. Evans agrees. 
And the too long didn't read from yesterday, which we went over, but is useful here, is that Evans ran an analysis basically saying Fortnite users don't switch between platforms much, and that banning Fortnite users on iOS didn't send them to play on other platforms. This is analysis trying to suggest that when Apple comes in and says the Xbox, the PlayStation, the Switch, the PC, whatever, is a substitute for Fortnite on iOS, that that is in fact not the case for reasons. We don't exactly know exactly why the lock-in occurs there, especially when wallets can be shifted across iOS and things like that, but this economist presented that it was. Lawyer also asks whether the kinds of switching costs Evans described for going outside the iPhone ecosystem, upshot, what he said, very high ones, also applies to the Mac. Evans says yes to an extent, but lawyer notes he doesn't claim that Macs have the same kind of market power. And that's interesting. As we just talked about, Evans' entire thesis, Epic's entire reason for bringing the case is that monopoly power exists when you control access to your hardware. And the Mac does that. The Mac does that to some extent in the same manner as the iPhone does it with respect to the Mac App Store. But Evan says it's yes to an extent. The lawyer notes he doesn't claim that Macs have the same problem because Epic doesn't want them to have the same problem. And this is the kind of stuff you have to tease out. This is why cross-examination exists and certainly in more important things such as criminal cases than just antitrust lawsuits between two giant mega companies. It's that you can say something that is true, but there are indications that there are other things to think about within that truth, such as, as Evan says here, yes, under this theory that you have market monopoly power over access to your hardware, that would apply to something like the Mac, but that's a more open ecosystem because it allows for other things outside of its app store. It does all these various things that we want the phone to do because Epic wants access to the phone technology, which brings us back to talking about structure in and of itself. We're back to the app store structure. The Apple App Store is providing two products. One is app distribution services, and the other is the App Store is providing a payment solution for in-app payments, says Evans. This is the crux of at least one portion of Epic's case that effectively, even if you allow that Apple should be allowed to run its own App Store and have it be a requirement that if you're going to put an app on its phone, it goes through that App Store, in-app payment processing is a different product and Apple could, in effect, allow others to use a third-party payment processor and not take its cut. The problem, as the judge has pointed out in the preliminary documents, as the judge is clearly kind of at least a little bit concerned with here in terms of her interjections, is that even allowing for it to be separate products and even allowing for it to be potentially illegal monopolistic tying of one good product and one bad product, doesn't Apple deserve to get paid for something? And if you're accessing their proprietary ecosystem, if you're getting your app in front of their users and you use a third-party payment processor, what is stopping you from effectively paying them nothing for access to everything that they've built, all the marketing that they've done, all the audience that they have put together for you? Isn't that ultimately what's going to happen? Because at some level, an app developer is going to say, okay, here's a title screen and now you owe us 15 bucks or five bucks or whatever the market can support in in-app payment processing to unlock the title screen. That doesn't have to go through Apple. That can go through our buddies at Epic or Stripe or PayPal or whatever. And now Apple's supporting this thing on their system that they didn't want to support and not getting paid to do it. Isn't that a fundamental problem with what you are trying to do in breaking down the walls in this fashion? And that's not going to stop being an issue no matter what these economists wind up saying. 
For some developers, those two products would be complements. For others, they could be independent. Some developers might like to get both. And in that sense, they're complementary. Is Google Play a competitor in the distribution market? Google Play would not be a significant competitor in that market for reasons discussed yesterday. Basically, if you have an iPhone, you won't be attracted to Play apps. Same question for the Samsung Galaxy Store, the Amazon App Store. Still no. Are any Android app stores a competitor? None are a significant competitor in the sense that they would constrain how Apple manages the App Store. Evan's claim is that Apple can have monopoly power in a market, even when there are two brands or a million brands, because of the inability of developers and users to substitute from the App Store to Android stores. And as Ms. Robertson says here, curious if the judge will weigh in on this because it's not, as far as I'm aware, a slam dunk argument for Epic. This is where their theory of the case either falls apart or has broad, far-reaching applications to more than just iOS and the iPhone, right? If you take this to its logical conclusion, there is an inability of developers and users to substitute from the App Store to the Android stores. I can't play my copy of Judgment that I bought on the PlayStation over on the Xbox, nor can I play my copy of Mass Effect that I bought on the Xbox over on the PlayStation, nor can I play a video that I bought on Voodoo, over on something that isn't voodoo unless there's license agreements between these various parties. That's the way the digital infrastructure works. And in general, we don't expect these various parties to advertise each other, to move these applications between those platforms. You're selecting a platform. And by this theory, every single one of them, Hulu, Voodoo, Amazon, Xbox, Nintendo, Sony, is a monopolist that has power over their market because they are restricting it, as Epic says is a monopoly violation, and because you can't substitute a competitor's product on their platform immediately and in every case. So this is an issue. This is why Ms. Robertson says, "Mm, I'm not sure if the judge is going to go for this, because this is the breadth of what Epic's talking about, even while they try to say they're not. And the judge, I think, is wise to the fact that a ruling for Epic on this basis will have significant ramifications for a whole host of technological solutions. Evans is asked to explain why the initial purchase of a paid app is not a separate product from the iPhone market, but in-app purchasing is separate. He says it's apples and oranges. We really should ban that phrase in a case about Apple, I'm just saying. Seemingly in part because the original purchase is a form of app distribution and IAP isn't. It's certainly a form of content distribution. It's a little bit unclear why the application versus the small unlocked code is distinct for this purpose. But it's also pointing out, as Apple continues to try to poke holes in what he is saying, that his combination of markets when he chooses to combine them and then to separate them when it makes sense for his client doesn't make sense as a workable foundational thesis for what's happening here. You want to say the In-app payment processing is separate from the actual app distribution, but the app distribution kind of lines up with the OS distribution so that you can say there's monopoly power when it crosses a certain point so that you don't drag in every technological solution ever. But does that make any sense for what you're trying to say? And I think Apple does an okay job of establishing, at least in somebody that's watching mine, that there's confusion and ambiguity here. Remember, Apple isn't presenting its case right now. Apple's going to have its defense. It's going to have its own experts. And one of the things they're trying to do, because they know what that person's going to say, they know exactly how that's going to go, is try to lead Epic's experts in a fashion that will be easily kind of slam dunked 
by their experts. And whether or not they succeed is anybody's guess. We don't know exactly how it's going to go when Apple's presenting its defense, but that's what they're trying to do. And one of the things they're trying to establish with this witness is that his definitions of markets are muddy and are really muddy in a specific way designed to advantage his client, Epic Games. That comes up again in this next question. Lawyer asks Evans to explain what he implies is a contradiction in Apple, having always had 100% over iOS app market share, but not having always had a monopoly based on its overall power in the smartphone market. Evans makes the sort of obvious rejoinder, says Ms. Robertson, of Apple's market mattering more when it has more power, super loosely. But even that confusion, that obvious rejoinder, is evidence of the problem with this testimony. And it's certainly something that Apple's going to bring up in their own expertise, which is that this particular expert isn't claiming that the OS market actually matters for whether or not you have iOS app market share. And so they're trying to, again, combine these markets in a fashion that works for their client and then kind of snarkily rejoined when people complain like Apple saying, aren't we always monopolist providers of iOS app market? And saying, well, it's more important when you have more power in the upper market. And yes, that might well be true, but it's not what your theory of the relevant market is actually based on because Apple doesn't have that power over the actual smartphone market. Lawyer citing testimony yesterday alleging poor quality distribution and services in the app store, but Apple will earn more if it helps users buy apps. The reverse is true too, right? Worse service will diminish Apple's revenue. It's just logical, right? Evans disagrees, says he's seen evidence of quality decreasing without affecting Apple's bottom line. I have observed that has in fact happened. Monopolists who don't face competition can get away with providing poor service to their customers. That's also kind of an obvious thing to know. And one of the titles that I had thought about for the thumbnail here is that economists can be snarky too. One of the things that happens in a court case is that you take on certain of the qualities of the party that you're representing. So Epic is very confrontational and very aggressive on these things. And their economists, their economics experts, tend to have these responses to cross-examination as well. Now, these folks are expert experts. They get paid for this all over the place. They're used to dealing with cross-examination. And so they are at least a little bit snarky in their responses, certainly as we will see in the case of the second expert we're going to talk about in respect of today's testimony. But it's an important point here. Apple is trying to establish that it's a 30% cut. We get more money when developers are happy than when developers are unhappy. Evans disagrees with that as a notion, which isn't accurate. You obviously get more money when more people are willing to spend money with you and basically just says that, well, it doesn't matter if you've got enough monopoly power because you have monopoly power. And that's fair as well, but it probably would have behooved him to not necessarily dismiss this kind of notion out of hand, except to say there is a much smaller pressure on you to provide those services if you are otherwise a monopolist. Now, Apple certainly provides services. The question is, are they necessary? Are they sufficient? Are developers happy with them? And are they monopolist? And could they just get rid of those services and keep exactly what they were doing otherwise? That's going to be a question that continues on throughout this court case. Did Apple have a duty to offer competing app stores when it became a monopolist, lawyer asks. I'm not answering your question quickly because I'm dwelling on the word duty. I can only answer that question in the context of an analysis of anti-competitive conduct. Now, of course, anti-competitive conduct in general is a prohibition. You can't do X thing because it's anti-competitive. You can't do Y thing. In general, it's not an obligation to do other things. 
So this is already an interesting case because at its core, Epic is saying you can't cut off our warranties if we put in an app store, users who put in that app store, because jailbroken phones are a thing. You have to, at some minimal level, support this thing that we want to do, including allowing separate app stores. So Apple is right to come in on this questioning and say, is there a duty to allow those extra app stores? When it became a monopolist, he says, Evans, it doesn't have an abstract duty to do that. The question is, once it acquires monopoly power, are there antitrust reasons why it would have to cease practices that prevent competition in app distribution? Now, this is important stuff. If they weren't a monopolist, because Evans is getting tripped up on markets here, when they started and only became a monopolist in 2010, when the smartphone market kind of collapsed down into some portion of the duopoly we see today, then do they have an obligation to change what they were doing from 2008 to 2010 because now they have sufficient market power? That isn't usually how we see these cases play out. Usually we see somebody with market power do something new, there's a lawsuit about it, and then that new thing is struck down as a use of monopoly power. Because as we've talked about in virtual reality, it's not illegal to be a monopolist. It's not illegal to gain monopoly power through competition, through Apple just making the best darn product ever, or if you'd prefer commenters, convincing all the sheep that they've made the best darn product ever in order to get that market share. So what Apple is pointing out here is that your theory, Epic's theory, would seem to suggest that after a certain point of time, which we can't know because it's so abstract and because you're reporting on it 11 years after the fact, at some point in time, we are mandated by law to change our guidelines of review, our policies, because we've crossed some invisible threshold. Is that accurate, Mr. Expert? Lawyer, it's your opinion that before 2010, it wouldn't be anti-competitive to have no competing app stores, right? Or to decline licensing third-party developers at all? Evans agrees. And I love that second question from Apple because that's also underlining all of this. If Apple had instead said no app store, only Apple apps, this is proprietary Apple hardware, we're not inviting anybody to participate in this market. Would that be legal? And under Epic's theory of the case, the answer would seem to be yes, it's much more legal because you are otherwise making it difficult on developers to do what they want on your ecosystem and only allowing it under certain rules. That becomes a very tough case to make because it then suggests that the law would have you close the gate entirely and that that is somehow better for competition. Apple then points that out in this logic, this question that says, before 2010, a number you plucked out of thin air based on your analysis, you're an expert, but a number that doesn't mean anything from every other perspective, before that time, we could decline licensing anything to anybody and we could have restrictions on no app stores and then that changed. So after 2010, when Apple gained market power, are the only two competitive paths licensing third-party app stores or never licensing developers at all, Evans indicates that's a fair description. You would have the law say that it is more competitive for us to not invite anybody to the party. How do developers feel about that? Do you feel Epic is backing you up if that is what their own expert says should happen on Apple? That they would get out of all this competition problems if they just didn't license developers at all. Evans indicates that's a fair description. I find that to be a very effective line of questioning from Apple because it highlights 
the certain inherent silliness with Evan's description of the markets and what Epic is really seeking to do and to describe as Apple's business model. Lawyer, you agree that Apple has established a reputation for the quality of its products, don't you? Evans agrees. Same for customer service, reliability, and protecting iPhone users from security threats. This is with respect to a line of questioning that's implicitly about whether Apple's, as far as we know, very high, app store profit margins are evidence of overwhelming market power. Lawyers saying it's not. Evans is more hesitant. We talked about this yesterday, of course, when I talked about jewelry and fashion and things like that, where the law doesn't require you to have a one-for-one correspondence between your profit margins and the cost of providing a product or a service that Apple can effectively make higher profit margins by convincing the world that the Apple on the back of that little box is very useful and a nice thing to have, that they are, in fact, at least in part, a consumer luxury item, and they make profits based on that. Evans, however, is more hesitant. Judge has still not given much indication of how convincing she's finding Apple's attempts to poke holes in Evans' testimony, except that she seems a little confused about how Evans is trying to define markets, and that is, in fact, going to continue. Epic Lawyer and Evans are downplaying the entire exchange about the two brand markets, saying the important thing is focusing on Apple having a monopoly on the iOS ecosystem. And of course, that is what they're focusing on. That's been their entire theory of the case. The problem, as Apple properly pointed out, is that applies to day one. And if it doesn't apply to day one, it's based on a different market. And if it is based on a different market, it's impossible for an actual market participant to know when David Evans is going to come to court and tell you what year it should have been that you had a mandate by law to change the way that your actual system works. Then we see that the judge is having an issue. Judge says she's trying to envision Evans' scenario. There's developers on one side, then customers, and there's a distribution channel connecting the groups. It sounds like what you're saying is the connection between these two groups should have many distribution channels, not just one. And the issue is that Apple has put up a toll booth for certain transactions, the judge says, as a question. Evans then responds, it's saying our platform will be the only distribution channel and for a set of apps, not the only distribution channel, but we're going to erect a toll booth that charges for something else, which is the transactions that the developer is doing with its own customer, its own consumer. And this, again, kind of points out that Epic's theory relies, at least in part, on this notion that in-app payment processing is entirely distinct from app distribution, app store restrictions, iOS markets, and everything else. But the channel is all technological, developed by the owner, Judge says. And the owner of that particular platform is Apple. So in order for that channel to be used, you have to use their technology. That's all proprietary, Judge says. Judge, continuing, on one of these many channels, there's a toll booth, which doesn't exist on all of them. And what you're saying is, no, we want you to have it either free or we want to develop our own channel on your proprietary platform. That's what it sounds like you're saying. And here we get the judge, again, indicating a certain level of concern here. We saw it in the early documentation that says, it sounds like what Epic is asking for is free access to your consumers and your hardware. And Epic really has never actually repelled that particular characterization of their case because at its core, the judge is right in establishing that that's what Epic would choose to do. And as we talked about as part of this video, if you don't have to use that toll booth, if you just set up something completely separately, it still sounds like you're accessing that circus tent, their marketplace, and just don't want to pay them. Evans tries to respond to this. He says he compares it to in-app purchases to an Uber driver who hits it off with a customer and decides to keep driving that person as part of a private relationship, 
but Uber still wants a cut of the money that changes hands outside the Uber app. Now, this is a funny example to me because if you have ever been in the world of contract relationships, temp agencies, corporate communications of virtually any kind, then you know that a very regular contractual provision is if we put you two kids in touch, then you can't cut out the middleman for at least a portion of time. If this person found that you're driving folks around the city because of Uber, then no, you can't just take that opportunity for yourself. Or if you can, you better be pretty quiet about it because it's a breach of your contract. And I don't know the Uber driver terms, but it would surprise the heck out of me if there isn't a concept that you have a fiduciary obligation to not steal Uber clients and make them personal clients. Because a lot of statutes and a lot of laws are going to back up the company in that particular model, that the employee has an obligation to not steal what are known as corporate opportunities from the corporation when they arrive at the employee's desk by virtue of their relationship with that corporation. So it's a very odd comparison to bring into court. And it wouldn't surprise me if Apple hits on it later. Or as Addie Robertson says here, this does make me wonder if Uber has policies around this. And I would be willing to bet that they do because so many contractor relationships effectively say, if you're put in touch with us, then you can't just steal that relationship. Or if you do, you owe us X amount of dollars. And oftentimes when you're dealing with something like a temp agency or a contractor relationship, it'll be something huge. Like you owe us a year of their salary because you stole what we had from their relationship and you took it and you put it in your own pocket. And that's done contractually. And so that's the way these things normally work. Evans does note that the anti-steering provisions prevent developers from pointing iOS users to cheaper prices elsewhere. Judge asks, if Apple didn't have these rules, would the problem be solved? And how did we arrive there? It's because the judge answered the Uber scenario with the following. There's nothing about that distribution process that impacts differently given your Uber example, allowing someone at Apple to pay for services through the web browser. Isn't that the same thing as going and paying in a separate place if people just learn to use the web browser? And that's how you get to anti-steering. And that's how you get to what we talked about yesterday, which is the judge appears to be nibbling at the edges of what if we mostly let Apple win, but they're prohibited from preventing developers from talking about where else their stuff might be purchased. And maybe there's constraints around that. Maybe they can't just say, oh, it's 50% off here. They can't make these kinds of distinctions, but they could have a paragraph that says, you can also buy V-Bucks from Epic directly. You can also purchase this subscription service over here. And would that not solve the problem? Now, this is going to come up again and again, and I suspect it's going to come up again and again and again and again throughout the remainder of the trial, because I do think the judge is entertaining this as a concept here. I will say there are issues, and the issues are probably not what you're expecting. There are issues with things that kind of are adjacent to First Amendment law, that freedom of speech concept. Corporations, love them or hate them, have certain rights under the Constitution of the United States. And, and among those rights is not being compelled to make statements that they don't want to make. Part of that is why you can see Facebook and Twitter and whoever moderating things, not just because they have contractual rights to do so, but because they also have the right to avoid putting speech out into the world that they don't want out there. Oftentimes in those particular instances, that's political. Here it's commercial. So you have a few less protections under the First Amendment, not in the words itself, but how the court has interpreted it. So it might be something that Apple is satisfied with as a solution because it would be a pretty big loss for Epic on the whole. But 
you're always going to have a problem essentially saying you can't prevent certain speech from appearing on your platform that you are projecting out into the world that your consumers are seeing. Because where that ends is amorphous. You say, hey, I can't prevent this for commercial reasons, but I must be able to prevent it for other things, right? I must be able to prevent sexually gratuitous or violent language or imagery from appearing in your description. I must be able to have rules around what your description actually says. I must be able to say you can't lie about what your application does, that kind of thing. So whether or not this is a workable solution might depend in part on whether Apple agrees that it's a workable solution or wants to go for it all and have a total win or maybe a loss, depending on how the judge is feeling about this question. We're focusing a little more on the anti-steering law rules. You think that a platform owner should be required as a matter of competitive activity to advertise the actions that are available to the consumer in its own store? Lawyers suggest that Epic could buy radio, television, or Wall Street Journal ads telling people they could buy V-Bucks outside the App Store, and then we get a ceiling and then a non-ceiling. We don't get a resolution to that particular angle. We don't know exactly what Epic's expert said in response to that. We can expect it was probably a little bit snarky and dismissive. And if you want a bigger discussion about anti-steering, how the judge feels about it, Uber in general, The Verge and Ms. Robertson put up a good article about this yesterday night that you can check out. It went over both what we talked about in terms of expert testimony and what we are about to talk about in this second half of the video. We're back, and Epic is calling Susan Athey as an expert witness. Apple pushed to seal Athey's written testimony, and Ms. Robertson attaches this actual motion to seal it based on the fact that she wasn't able to see Apple documents, appeared to react to them without seeing them directly, all because she was affiliated with Microsoft at the time, which was a noted competitor of Apple's. And so you don't have to transfer information to competitors and Epic hired her anyway. Athi is an economics of technology professor at Stanford and has been since 2013. Athi was also consulting chief economist for Microsoft. Apple complained in an objection that Epic knowingly retained an expert that had a past and ongoing working relationship with a competitor of Apple, which meant she couldn't review some confidential Apple docs. Athey says she concluded that switching costs for iOS are locking consumers into the Apple ecosystem. And this goes with Mr. Evans' testimony from yesterday and today when he's talking about hey, we've got an aftermarket here. One of the things that's important about an aftermarket is the fact that there is a very sticky lock-in to consumers in that market, that they already purchased the primary product and they aren't that interested in moving around. Athi comes in here and backs up that kind of supposition that the iOS is deliberately locking consumers into the Apple ecosystem. Now, one of the problems is, yes, the iOS just operates in that fashion just like any other digital ecosystem. And there's going to be a certain amount of natural lock-in and stickiness. And the law, the Sherman Act, built way, way, way before any kind of digital infrastructure was ever even conceived, doesn't handle that concept well. doesn't handle network effects or natural lock-in, natural monopoly tendencies very well. It's really designed only for specific, aggressive, anti-competitive acts done by a company and not just kind of the build up to monopoly and then just doing the same thing, which is what Epic is attacking here. Athi goes back to anti-steering rules on iOS. Consumers can't tell from looking at their app on their iPhone where they may be able to find that app on other platforms. If they want to switch to Android, they have to do extra research to figure out what apps are available. And again, that's true everywhere. 
Go on the PlayStation Network store and try to figure out what games are available only on PlayStation and what's available on the Xbox and try to go figure out what the prices are between the two markets. Those two competitors don't have to advertise availability on each, on each other. Or more specifically, if you've ever been done doing this yourself like I have, try to figure out where a TV series is that was once on Netflix, whether it lives on Hulu or Peacock or anywhere else now, and whether or not you should buy any of those because they're only available on a service you don't subscribe for, et cetera, et cetera. There is no question it's not ideal, but there's also no question that in general, these companies shouldn't have to advertise, well, you can't find this show here, but you can find it over on Hulu because they outbid us for it don't usually have to do that. And that's not deemed as anti-competitive. That's deemed as competitive. We are competing with those things. We don't have to advertise them. PlayStation is competing with Xbox. iOS is competing with Android, but not here, not in Epic's case. At the notes, you have to repurchase the same app on Android, even if you've already bought it on iOS. Now, specifically talking about subscriptions, if I purchase that subscription on my iPhone, I need to continue to manage that subscription through Apple, even without an iOS device. You have to go back to Apple's ecosystem, says Athy. Judge says she thought you signed up through the service, not the platform. Athy says some services are like this, but others allow the option to buy a subscription directly through Apple, in which case it would be managing your account. Now, note the slight change in position there. They certainly do. In fact, you can buy HBO through Hulu, as we just talked about, and then you have to go and cancel HBO through Hulu if that's what you want to do. Similarly, you can buy Netflix through Netflix or for some subscriptions, apparently like the New York Times, you can buy it through Apple. But in almost all instances, that's your election. You go and you buy it through Apple. And then yes, you would expect to have to manage that subscription account through Apple because the consumer made the choice to do so. And again, we get into a situation where expert economists, are you suggesting that consumers should not have those choices? Are you suggesting that we'd be better off if Apple didn't have any app store and didn't allow developers in at all? Are you suggesting we'd be better off if the New York Times didn't allow you to buy the subscription through Apple at all and just said, come and get it over on our service? Doesn't strike me as something that's better for the end user who apparently wants all these options. That's what Epic is selling the court here. But in this particular case, it's apparently a bad option because when you're in Apple's ecosystem, you're in Apple's ecosystem. If you wanted to switch to Android, you'd cancel your subscription with Apple and then sign up again elsewhere, Athy says, adding friction. Athy also brings up what she calls mixing and matching costs, which add more friction if people or families want to alternate between using iOS and Android apps. Now, as folks have pointed out, here is Ms. Robertson editorializing, having to rebuy apps on different platforms is not unique to Apple Android. You often have to rebuy games on various consoles, for instance. And that's really the crux of the matter. Epic continues to describe the market and market participants on the whole. And then when the judge says, doesn't this apply to Xbox? Doesn't this apply to various other things that come up? Epic says no, because reasons, because they have a different business model, because we don't want them to apply in that way, even though we're going to send economists at you that aren't going to make those distinctions because those distinctions don't really have a bearing on what a relevant market is or on how the law works. Developers have a strong incentive to solve these problems, Athy says. The more the user can consume their services, the more value the consumer gets from them. If they can access the app both in the park and in bed at night, they're going to create more value. This requires some specific technologies. If the developer wants to maintain a relationship with the users, they need an account management infrastructure. They also need a payment infrastructure that works cross-platforms. Small companies don't necessarily want to build that. Athy mentioned before that she's here to talk about middleware where independent companies build specific services to solve their problems. And that's one of the focuses that she has here. At the on the mobile ecosystem, we're talking about a scenario where we have a stable duopoly 
where most users are already locked in, and where even the few new arriving users like children coming of age are already going to be influenced by the platform purchases of their parents. In this environment with locked in consumers, we have a scenario where the platforms are adding additional frictions to an environment where we already expected to have switching costs. And these additional costs create market power over both users and developers. Again, note the language used here. The platforms are adding additional frictions. These are the frictions that the App Store has had since its inception. It had a limitation on the App Store use. It had a mandate of in-app payment processing. A lot of this testimony and the testimony of Epic's experts is effectively aimed, kind of boilerplate-like, at what is a traditional antitrust kind of holding. You did something bad, and now you should be punished by the court. Apple sits here and says, we did what we've always done, and you've said that what we've always done was fine up until point X, and then it stopped being fine. And that's probably too amorphous for the law and probably making the judge a little uncomfortable as a notion. But they continue to kind of steal this base. We have a scenario where the platforms are adding additional frictions. Those frictions have existed since their inception. Middleware has a prominent role as one of the things that can help a new entrant overcome the barrier to entry. And it plays an essential role in platform competition. Lawyer asks for examples of middleware. Athy cites cross-platform app stores and app streaming services. Athy notes that this middleware was a key concept in the big Microsoft browser antitrust case where it referred to platforms like web browsers. And again, here we have a stolen base. And it's a stolen base if you're an actual commenter here in virtual reality. You know of, a lot of folks have asked me about Microsoft. There are videos in this space that talk about Microsoft. One of the main things that happened with Microsoft is that they were selling into a separate market that they had Windows mandates for hardware manufacturers that were found to be anti-competitive, and it should be noted, were never taken to their conclusion. They were appealing that when it was ultimately settled, and it was settled effectively after their market share had already dwindled. So that isn't a great legal precedent for anything, but especially here, where as the judge has continued to point out, Apple is the proprietary owner of every bit of this market. That's a piece of hardware they built with software they programmed to operate it. This isn't them selling software into a different hardware market with rules attached to it, which ironically enough is far closer to what Google is doing with their Google Play and Android market than it is with what Apple is doing with their iOS on their iPhones and iPads. Judge brings up the option of signing up through something like a website again. If they did that, then there wouldn't be the same kind of need for a cross-platform app store you're talking about, she says. That would be a big benefit, I agree, that you could alert people to the most efficient way to pay. And if people valued cross-platform access, that would be a benefit. Athy says the problem is consumers do get klutzy and disconnected and sensitive to delays when trying to complete that kind of activity. So making it easy and being able to get there quickly would be helpful. And again, that's usually something that consumers decide about whether something is clunky or too frictionful and trying to find a product that they actually want. But again, the judge seizing on... I'm just not sure whether this is as locked in as you say it is, but if we were allowed to say that you could buy it somewhere else, would that be good enough? Athy now cites the Epic Game Store as a cross-platform app store where people can access a library of apps across any platform that they choose to use. Athy cites Steam as well, and then moves on to talking about apps and game services. That's her primary testimony for Epic. And then we move on to a very short portion of cross-examination that will continue into today's testimony, in all likelihood tomorrow's video, but we can already see what Apple wants to address here. They say, hey, you didn't look at anything from our documents. 
Apple's lawyer notes, Athy hasn't reviewed Epic documents. Athy agrees. Hasn't reviewed third-party documents. Athy didn't review confidential Apple documents about why the App Store is organized like it is. The surveys of how many people switch platforms. Why Apple did what it did. If that evidence existed and it was produced by Apple, you would not have seen it, correct? Well, documents may have been alluded to, Athy says, but she didn't look to those in written testimony. Have you ever done that before? The Apple lawyer asks. Offered an opinion about the competitive effects of a company without reviewing their internal documents. Athy says she hasn't done that under oath in a court specifically. For this purpose that she's presenting testimony, she has never done it without actually looking at how the company operated or how the company made the decisions that it made. Athy is not as good of an expert for this purpose, for Epic's purpose, as Evans was. Evans is the stronger expert, and Apple has a relatively good line of attack here saying you don't know what you're talking about, effectively. Or as Ms. Robertson says, Apple's argument here in part is that Anthony couldn't have reasonable knowledge of anything she's talking about because she hasn't been able to look at relevant information from Apple thanks to her relationship with Microsoft and confidentiality issues. Apple also says Athy cited the first prong here about the differences between Android and iOS, but failed to mention that developers were concerned about Android due to crippling levels of piracy. She says basically that the first part is the relevant bit, but that piracy was not the primary thing that would set the expectations of industry participants, in my opinion. And again, she's not an expert in developers' thought processes, So that's not a terribly valuable opinion for purposes of this conversation. Apple wants to keep hitting security as a concept that is why they do what they do. And I think Apple will have a lot of testimony about security when they take up the defense and when they start calling witnesses on their own. You don't have to agree with it. I know a lot of you don't, that Apple is not as secure as they say that it is. But Apple is certainly premising its marketing and its market position and its imagery for consumers on the premise that it is. Apple's lawyer, you focus on certain things, not others, even though in the industry, security and privacy, which you do not mention, are very important. Do you disagree with that? I don't think that's a completely fair characterization because the reason that we're here to talk about competition is we need competitive pressures to ensure that firms innovate and provide features that people want, which doesn't satisfy Apple's lawyer. And in fact, we're not in court for that reason. We are not here to assure competitive pressures to ensure that firms innovate. We are here to ask the question of whether or not Apple, once it became a monopolist, according to Dr. Evans in 2010, did anything illegal from that point on. And Evans' testimony suggests that just staying the same became illegal after a set point in time that he determined. But the court is not just here to evoke the public policy prescriptions of the Sherman Antitrust Act or the trust busters of old. They're here to determine whether Apple did something wrong. And as part of that, it is important to note that Apple, when looking at things from an antitrust perspective, when trying to analyze whether they have a reason for doing what they are doing, even if they're a monopolist, even if they lose that relevant market case, can say, we have a business reason for doing this thing. And that business reason is security and privacy and control of an app store that could make our consumers very unhappy if, for instance, $1.5 billion in potentially fraudulent transactions came through. You don't have to love that argument, but Apple has it and is trying to poke holes in the expert testimony based on that. Finally, the final statement we get from yesterday's testimony, lawyer notes again that V-Bucks can be purchased on one platform and used on another, except Sony Nintendo that locks them off, including buying on the iOS browser. They are shared across wallets. What's the problem? 
And then Athy with the final bit of snark for the day. Well, I don't know if you've ever tried to do that with a baby on your shoulder, but in principle, yes. And I'm not entirely sure what the distinction between buying V-Bucks through a mouse uh, or on your iPhone with a baby on your shoulder. I've done a lot of things with babies on my shoulders and babies on my chest, uh, including one uh, very scary, not really, story when my beloved Red Wings scored a goal in the Stanley Cup playoffs and I forgot my daughter was on my chest, but all's well that ends well. It's a good story nonetheless, and she doesn't remember it, so it's all good anyway. But suffice it to say, you've got experts talking about things like this and getting a little snarky on cross-examination, and it will be interesting to see how that proceeds through more and more expert testimony. Right now, Epic has made its case in terms of experts about what the relevant market is. It has expressed certain confusion in both the judge and our intrepid reporter helping us through these live tweets and live streams of what this actually is at a court level and Apple's poking some significant holes. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Judge also seems like she might be inclined to put a restriction on that anti-steering provision. So ultimately we might have something of a split baby scenario at the end of all this. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you enjoy talking about Epic versus Apple or anything else in the world of business and law, please consider supporting the channel. We've got a Patreon. We've got Streamlabs. We've got a store. Subscribe, ring the bell, upvotes, downvotes, leave a comment, and tell your friends. Tell Google, tell YouTube, tell your friends that we're here having these conversations. Every little bit helps. Otherwise, if you saw this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.